Hello, TTB community. I am Bob Demena. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Each week, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our every very own personal travel experiences. Joining to me today is the very loquacious Elliot Chibley. Oh, thank you, Bob. Thank you. Uh, so our guest today is Paul Wilson. And Paul has a pretty incredible story that he hasn't told until recently and it's in a book called bad karma and we talk about it this occurred in the summer of 1978 it is a fantastic story it was a lot of fun talking to paul we uh, learned a lot about uh el chapo in you know young yeah, el chapo yeah, 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 yeah. which is kind of crazy and uh-huh. the story just takes a bunch of turns and it's just fun. I, I don't want to give too much into it because the episode pretty much covers it all. So travel tip of the week is invest in some decent photography gear. Usually on shorter trips, a smartphone is fine. The cameras are actually pretty incredible nowadays. But if you're staying for longer than a few weeks, then definitely invest in a nicer camera because you're going to really appreciate having that zoom, having that ability to change things. Uh, it's nice. It's very nice. So before we get into the episode, check out some of the cool products we offer. The Traveler's Blueprint offers a travel journal and planner that is available for $7.99 on our website. It is a PDF, so you can fill it out online or in paper, and it is completely reusable. We also offer a Become Your Own Travel Agent five-part video tutorial. Part one is navigation, two is booking airfare, three blogs, research, and reviews, four itinerary building, and five safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. You can find that on our website, and it is $25. We also offer travel consulting. So for more information on that, go to our website and feel free to send us a DM on social media or an email. Lastly, you can join us. And if you want to, you can you can be a part of our Travel Around Table series. That's where we sit down with a group of, of travelers. Send us your email with your name, your website, and a few travel-related topics that you enjoy discussing, and we will get back to you. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Paul, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, welcome to the show. We're excited to talk to you about something that happened quite a while ago, but I guess you've only been able to share recently. And before we get into that exciting story, let's give you a chance to talk a little bit about yourself and a little bit about how this, oh, I guess... We should say it's Bad Karma uh, yeah. is the book that kind of highlights all of this stuff. But talk a little bit about you and how Bad Karma came to be. Well, um, Bad Karma is a story about three ne'er-do-wells, me being one of them, the, that uh, each did some pretty crummy things independently and unknown to the others preceding a trip to uh, mainland Mexico. And this whole story took place back in 1978 when I was just 21 years old. So dating myself, I'm, I'm 65 now. So it was, uh, what that, what's that, 40 some odd years ago? Yeah. And yeah, oh wow. And I was 21 years old and I was living in an apartment building with, uh, um, it was uh, 14 apartments, 19 surfers, uh, right on the beach in Imperial Beach, uh, the most southwesterly city in the continental United States. And these guys are a bunch of hotshot hot surfers and I was, uh, about four or five years younger than any of them, kind of a dork. I'd grown up a very sheltered life and kind of, uh, you know, my, my, even my, my teachers called me Poindexter because I was the, <laughs> always the guy that was tinkering with things and taking things apart and reimagining things and 
you know, people, some people just called me, uh, you know, Paul Modify Wilson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I moved into this building and, and I was kind of a hanger on. And so I was, I was dubbed polyopters as uh, the guy that helicoptered around the older guys all the time. And then we all had nicknames. Um, the, the three of us that went on the trip, there was uh, Moose, Ed Moss was Moose and uh, Jelly Roll was, uh, or Handsome Jelly, we called them, was um, uh, uh, Steve Warren. And the three of us, it, it's an actually, it's a true story, completely uh, um, backed up by 40 photographs in the book and everything. So people can, you know, every time they think I'm making something up, there's some pure craziness. And I think I'm making up or, or, or exaggerating, there's a photograph to back it up. Well, yeah, before we before we get into to your background, um, very briefly, give us some of the quick things. Like, why do people think it's made up? What about well, the story is so, you know, out of uh, hard <laughs> yes, to believe is, in, is, is tied well, to reality. Yeah. Well, it, it's just, it, it's beyond belief. It just, it, it was a, this trip, it was supposed to be two months in paradise. And we, we determined our bad karma. So it became bad karma, the, the true story of a Mexico trip from hell. And it really was it, 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 two weeks in paradise turned into five and a half weeks, just trying not to die. Because everything, you know, the, the people were great. The, the authorities didn't bother us at all. But, the, you know, the cosmos does keep score. And it, it just kicked our butts every single day. The, um, one of the things that happened was uh, heading down to Baja, the uh, engine started leaking oil. And this leak got progressively worse. We, we tried to pull the engine in the middle. We pulled the engine in the middle of the desert and tried to fix it and everything. It didn't work. And so we, we burned up, uh, went through 38 quarts of oil, just getting uh, the, uh, the 900 miles from where it started leaking until we got to an automotive repair facility. Wow. And so to, to back that up, I, I had, had, I retained all the artifacts and everything from the trip. And one of the artifacts was a postcard I'd sent home to my roommate. And it says right in there, you know, we, we made it, but it took 38 quarts of oil to get here. And so a picture of that postcard is in, in the back in the book to, to document what happened. <laughs> Then we, we uh, eventually got on a seagoing ferry uh, going across uh, from uh, Cabo San Lucas to Puerto Vallarta. At that time, the, 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 the large ocean going ferries don't leave out of Cabo San Lucas anymore. They learned that it was just too narrow, too shallow of a harbor to, to shoehorn those things into. So that now they go out of La Paz, but back then it was Cabo San Lucas. Leaving the harbor, we ran her down and destroyed one of the one of the propellers, and then uh, we're notified by the captain that we were, we we still had one of the finest, most powerful diesel engines on any ship, and just one of them would be okay because there was this big storm in, in between us and Puerto Vallarta, and it was a, a category four, four hurricane, and we we were able to miss it slightly. But we, we, so there's pictures of the hurricane and I backed all this up because uh, I had kept a, I was being a nerd, being a poindexter, I had a, a Lord's mileage book and I kept a daily log of mileage, where we were, what was going on. Wow. And things were getting so fantastic as we were going down there that I started keeping a, a, a journal of dates and all my receipts and artifacts from the trip and um, business cards from people and postcards and uh, lots and lots of photographs. That's and, incredible. Uh, so you knew at the time that it was going to be that it was what you were doing was kind of cool. Well, it, it was kind of it was kind of cool and kind of memorable. But you know how I earned my bad karma is I I really couldn't afford to go on a trip of this length, and so I robbed a supermarket in uh, the next town, North Coronado, and uh, used the proceeds to in the U.S. Uh, yeah, in the U.S. to to pay for my my way. <laughs> and uh, and at the moose, he had. Um, I was informed about four hours before I left that he had killed somebody, manslaughter, an automobile accident, uh, when he was all screwed up on uh, quaaludes and alcohol. 
and uh, he was uh, so, supposed to be report for confinement the morning we left, and I was just right across the border. Wow! So you learned that that morning or that day? That morning, about four hours before, and then uh, <sighs> the I thought he was so cool. You know, he was like one of the total surf icons of the area. Everybody looked up to Moose, and then uh, um, Jelly. He was uh, known as Handsome Jelly because he was a serial heartbreaker, and he uh, had just right as we were already loaded up in the bus, ready to go, about to turn the key. His girlfriend shows up and reveals that it's revealed that that he has uh, dealt her a horrible uh, emotional and physical blow, and so he he that that's how he earned his bad karma. So the three of us went down there each with our own independent dark clouds. <clears throat> and we, we learned real quick, the cosmos does keep score. Wow. And when you say bus, you mean a literal VW bus? A VW bus, a 1966 VW bus. And it had a personalized plate. I got when I first, I, I bought the plate when I first got it. Uh, it and I called it the Wonder Bus because I wondered <laughs> if it was going to start. And, uh, you know, wondered if it was going to make it to where it was going. But little by little, I fixed it up and spiffed it out and upgraded the motor and, and painted it and dolled it all up, you know, teak and brass and, and interior and all that. It was just, it was a beautiful thing. And wow. so I got a, pers a personalized frame for it, too. It said faster than a speeding bullet. And so the, the Wonder Bus, you know, I, I figured it was bulletproof. And we went down there expecting so. And uh, we it, it, it let us down multiple times. Yeah, I mean, you have one picture. You're literally driving it through a river. Well, what we learned was this place that we were going to, the ultimate destination down there was La Ticla. And uh, it's in the, the, the state of Michoacan, uh, way down south in Mexico, right in the heart of cartel country. And uh, we, we to get to this little surfing village, or the point, which was seldom visited. In fact, we were there for five weeks, and we were the only gringos that, that were there. The, um, we had to cross uh, a river because they kept trying to build a bridge across it. The, the Mexican government kept trying to, the transportation department kept trying to build a bridge across. And three times they had got it up, three times it had been washed out by storms. And so we got there and the bridge was gone. And we asked the guys, the road construction guys, and Moose knew a little bit of Spanish, just enough to get us by. I knew almost none. And so we, we went up to this construction crew and said, well, how do we get across? And they told Moose, <clears throat> there's no possibility you're getting across this river. It's too deep. It's too fast. That little thing you're in is never going to make it. And so Moose turned to me and says, we crossed right just up here a little bit. And <laughs> so we, we went and where, where the dump trucks were going across and big farm trucks were making it across. And he said they were really, you know, struggling, slogging across. And once in a while, they, they come to a stop and the a bunch of uh, peasants that were in the back would would jump out and help free the, the, the truck from its bind and then get it across. And so I, I, I guess my better judgment, I went for it, but we made it across and it was quite the thrill. All the, all the locals and everything were honking their horns and hooting and hollering because this little micro, Volkswagen microbus had made it across. But then we were there and there was no other way out. We had to cross it again to leave. And the, when we got ready to leave, the, um, we had encountered a number of things, one of them being a big storm, and the, the river had started to come up, and they were warning everybody to get out because it was expected to come up high enough to wash it through the village. The village had about six or seven uh, huts. That's how big the town was, and just, you know, dirt roads and pigs and chickens and uh, donkeys and everything burning around everywhere, wild dogs and such. So is this but, uh, the river rustic. right at Laticla? Yes, it's called the Astula River, 
and okay. it's just just uh, north. It, it separates uh, uh, Tikla from the the Astula Valley north of it. Okay. What I love about this story is, you know, I, th- I think we need to remember that it's happening in 1978. You have a VW bus. <laughs> this is like the stereotypical uh, like uh, 70s road trip. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's just so different than what people experience travel as today. Um, I'm curious to just hear what, I guess, Mexico was like, you know, even going to Mexico and traveling the way you did. Were many people doing it like that? There were some doing it then. It was, uh, we're, we're a, a bit of a pioneer. Moose had been there a couple of times before. And that's, that was the whole, um, just the reason that we went to this particular surfing beach. It was the Sula River for years <clears throat> had, had flooded and sent large amounts of soil and debris out into the ocean and eventually built this, this point break where the, the deep water swells would come in, hit this point and break left and right and made for a really great surf spot. And because it was so isolated, and tough to get to, it was uh, um, very unsurfed. I mean, there was nobody there. There was no crowds or anything. And we knew that once that bridge was successfully through, then a lot more people would be showing up. And it it really did develop into quite a a surfing resort. Now you can't go there unless you're a member of the cartel because the cartel owns the town and they they, they don't let anybody in there that's not in the cartel or or, uh, invite guests. It's a very rough area. And you encountered the cartel while you were down there, correct? It, back then, it wasn't so much called the cartel, but it was a, um, they called it the plaza system. And uh, it developed over the next couple of years shortly after that into officially known as the cartel. But it, it was everything but named the cartel. Okay. Like the, the local organization was called La Familia Michoacana. And uh, it was, you know, the family of, of Michoacan. And they controlled the drug trade and everything around there. But it this was is cocaine, right? This is cocaine back in the 70s and 80s. That's like the rise of the cocaine. It, well, it era, was right back it? then. It was back then. It was mostly marijuana. Um, oh, okay. And, and, and uh, heroin poppies. Okay. That was a big thing. In fact, you know, later in the story, on the way back, we uh, I had a, a chance encounter with uh, Joaquin um, Guzman, known as El Chapo. And, uh, and that was way, that was pre-king, right? Well, he was he was on his way up. You know, he okay. he'd been working in the, the poppy and the marijuana field since he was five years old, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons we clicked because I was working for my dad at, from age five. I mean, running a drill press and stuff at age five at his cabinet shop. Yeah. So we we hit it off. We both had tyrannical fathers and benevolent mothers, and so he he wanted to do everything he could to to make his mother proud the whole time his dad was beating him down. And kind of a similar background, so we we struck up a, a strong friendship at that point. And how old was Joaquin when you had beers he, with him? He, he's four months younger than me, so we were both twenty-one. Wow! Yeah, and we That's we learned wild. his we learned his nickname because um we went I had we had to leave my VW with him um on the return trip. It just gave up the ghost, wouldn't come in go any further, and that was a whole adventure in, into itself. But uh, when we he took care of it and kept it at a compound that his boss was in charge of, and when we went back down there, we we learned that he was a kind of a mid level lieutenant. In fact, the first day we met him, he had uh, about three hundred kilos of marijuana in his trunk, and we got involved in a little chase at the federales, which was exciting with him driving. Um, so that was, <laughs> yeah, and so we learned he was kind of a mid level lieutenant and everything, but he kept working his way up. And uh, uh, 15, 17 years or so later was when he was actually uh, king of the cartel and um, had had his first arrest. 
big time arrest. So your experience in Mexico um, includes time with El Chapo. Did he put you to work or like try to convince you to smuggle <laughs> drugs back into the United States? No, not me personally, but it was funny because most, um, when we got back to the States, even though he was wanted uh, for evading um, his, his sentence for, for manslaughter, he came back, gathered up some cash, went immediately right back down there and hooked up with Joaquin. And he started smuggling uh, pot from Joaquin. Uh, he was taking down a couple of surfboards and in a surfboard bag, two surfboard bags, and he they would hollow them out down there, pack them full of bricks of marijuana, and then re-glass them and paint them over and everything so they looked like surfboards. They were heavier than heck. They, you could never surf them, but he would carry those onto the ferry and come back up and everything and, and um, hitch rides and stuff with his surfboards, with surfboards back up to the States. They'd open them up and, and distribute the pot. He did this for uh, quite a few trips until he was busted. Moose was um, one of those guys that uh, he was a good guy. But uh, in fact, we became pretty good friends later on. Uh, we we, had, we were at loggerheads during this trip, but uh, later on, we became pretty good friends. And, but he was one of these guys that would take just unnecessary chances, um, driving down the road, taking a shotgun out from back behind my headrest and uh, a, a camper that I had and, and blasting at, at street signs and stuff. You know, just stuff that was just idiotic. And so when Moose was coming back on the ferry with one of his loads, the surfboard loads, he couldn't resist firing up the joint. And so they busted him for firing for smoking pot on the ferry. He, he couldn't wait the 12-hour ferry ride across, you know, without pot. So he did that. And so they searched his luggage and found these surfboards that were heavier than they should be and, and busted them and threw them in a, a, a prison in La Paz. And then somebody pulled some strings. I'm not sure who, but uh, they moved him to Tijuana where he was extradited to the States and he became, uh, so he, he did his, his sentence, his four years for doing the, uh, for manslaughter and, and escaping. And then um, he immediately uh, got out of that and work, went down with Joaquin and established a, a high volume uh, drug, marijuana, uh, heroin, cocaine smuggling ring into the United States into Imperial Beach. Now the town where I robbed the supermarket that was Coronado, the next town north. And it was actually made a, a 60 Minutes episode. They had the, um, the the Coronado company, a bunch of surfers, and uh, actually the, the high school swimming coach were involved in a high volume ring. When it was taken down, it left a void. And the, uh, the Tijuana Plaza, Tijuana Cartel at that time, was running the drugs through Coronado. And when that, that thing got taken down, they were sitting there with this big inventory and no way to get it into the States. And so uh, Joaquin and Moose swooped in, set up this ring, and were bypassing the, the Tijuana cartel. And the Wasabi Sinaloa cartel was making inroads into the Tijuana, uh, Cal California um, uh, corridor. And that's what really led, that's what led to the, uh, the start of the, of the cartel wars and, and all the violence. Because the, the Tijuana cartel didn't like Joaquin stepping on its turf. And so they killed a couple of those guys and he retaliated by wiping out a whole bunch of theirs and it just went back and forth and it still goes on today. Wow. So all this started by just wanting to surf in Latika. <laughs> all this started by me wanting to fit in by looking, yeah. up to the, yes. looking up to the wrong people and doing really stupid stuff to try to. Well, that's kind of the theme of your, at least that was the overarching theme that you identified in your book is that you just 
maybe not try to fit in so hard and try to identify what, you know, who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's actually, if you, I've got a little passage in the book. I can yeah, see it real quick. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of when I've, I've started figuring things out, realizing that I'm, I'm trying to look up to all the wrong people. And that's kind of the, the, one of the themes of the book is that, you know, don't waste your time trying to impress the wrong people. Live for who you are and uh, you, you'll stay out of a lot of trouble. This is uh, after we had been uh, down in Tikla. We'd had a lot of problems. I'd been chased out of the water by a shark, um, you know, stuff like that. And, and um, I, when I was chased out of the water, I was so terrified it was going to get me that I kept running, even when I was on dry <laughs> land, just sprinting into the jungle. And, and I banged up my feet pretty good and cut them so they were bleeding. And so I figured it wasn't such a good idea to go back in the water. The, the sharks kind of congregated around the river mouth because it would wash out debris you know, small farm animals and stuff would end up in the ocean. The sharks would come in and they would, they would eat them. So we were swimming in their feeding ground or surfing in their feeding ground. So this is when we're, we're finally getting ready to leave. And we're, I'm at the, the bus and I'm packing things up. The other two guys are out surfing the last day before we're going to go. I say uh, a feeling of profound emptiness washed over me. Here I was in La Titla, having finally surfed one of the coveted jewels of mainland Mexico once that was it one morning for about five hours now i was alone in camp stowing our stuff so we could leave i sat there staring at nothing in particular spellbound by the moment it was sobering to think of how much of me i had squandered in vain pursuit of being accepted instead of putting that same energy into living a life that was worth something but it was yeah. it was very much the case i was i just it, it hit me like who am i trying to be like here a guy that's going to go to jail when he gets back or a guy that is his, his biggest claim to fame was as a, a, a part-time uh, waiter in a restaurant. Um, I mean, it was, I was trying to be like those guys and here. I had all the opportunities in the world being, being pushed on me. And you said you were only in Mexico. This trip was only five weeks, five and a half weeks, five and a half weeks. A lot happened but, in that time. Yeah. <laughs> Five and a half weeks, I see that's about 37, 40 days, uh, 30, 37 yeah. days. And so I'd say we had 37 different disasters, pretty much. I mean, it was just every, you know, I didn't even include all the things that happened in the book because it, it was just, it was starting to stretch imagination or stretch belief with the things I did put in there. Now, there's 40, 40 photographs to back them up, but it was still, oh my God, you couldn't have hooked up with Joaquin Guzman. But then I've got a picture of him standing in front of my bus. Yeah. And, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so you, you, you realized it at some, at, at, as you just described in your book, like that, in that passage, that it, this is not a good path to be on. Was it a natural evolution of events that led you to change your mind about where you were headed? Or was it one particular uh, moment or event that really popped out and you were like, okay, this is not a good idea. Like I should get out of this lifestyle. I think it was, uh, um, it took me a while to get out of the lifestyle. I didn't, it wasn't like a, it was a reckoning on that trip and I did change my ways. <clears throat> I never no, stole another thing. I would go out of my way to return something to somebody who dropped it. If they dropped a wallet, I would, you know, bust my tail to get it back to them, that kind of thing. So that part of me changed. And, um, uh, you know, instead of trying to get over on people, I, I became a giver instead of a taker. But the, uh, it wasn't really one moment. I think it was uh, more a, uh, a reckoning of that I was with guys that were just using me. And so I stopped trying to look up to people who are just trying to take advantage of everything you're giving. And then also my interactions with the Mexican people. 
down there. The, you know, I was raised, my dad, uh, I mentioned he was kind of a tyrant. Well, he was raised uh, uh, the son of a longshoreman in Long Beach, uh, California. And he worked on the, at, down at the piers quite a bit, both selling candy bars to the longshoremen and also eventually loading and unloading ships. And he, uh, when the Mexican people would come in, they would often work off the books and for lower money. And so he had a real disdain for Mexicans. And he, he used to tell me, you know, they'll, they'll rob you blind if you, if you let them, you know, they don't trust them for a minute, all that kind of stuff. And so my experience in going into Mexico was being on guard. And what I found was completely the opposite. There were saints. The people at the least would, would give it to you if you needed it. Um, the, uh, the people that took care of me when I made a trip over to Mexico City on a bus ride to get some parts, they just gave me everything. I mean, just put me up, fed me, got, got me back to the, the bus station and everything. You know, they, they wouldn't even accept money for doing things. And um, it was just amazing. The people, the kindheartedness of the people at the least would give you the most. Wow. Yeah. And you, you kind of talk about that a little bit about that is since they don't have a lot of material items to call their own, those possessions, their possessions are really family honor. And once you, once you taint those, it's hard to get them back. It's mm -hmm. not like losing a material object where you can just buy another one. That is, that is something that you build over time. You establish like basically a, a savings account with individuals and when you overdraw that, then it's hard to put that back in and build that honor and build that familial relationship again. And that's that's really what it is. The even the, the Mexican people there, they have their whole culture is about a sense of family. Um, you know, you, you don't betray your family if you uh, you know their birthday parties. You know, they'll have seventy family members at a birthday party. Um, you know, the quinceanera. They, yeah. Everything they do is just so family oriented. And I got a kick out of one of the, the people that I interacted with. Uh, Salvador was his name, the taxi driver who rescued me from the bus station and took me to his, his cousin's house to recuperate from a, a bout with uh, Guadalajara bus station food. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, he, he said, uh, he, he joked that I, I was mentioning that he, they have such amazing family structure. He says, yes, everybody is family. Even, even my uncle who's in prison right now, um, he's family too. We, we don't you know, talk about him as much as the others. And he's not been to any family gatherings lately, but he's still family. And, you know, I, I, at, the, at that time that the story, I, I, I comment that, you know, I could count the family that would show up for me on, on, you know, I would not use up all 10 fingers. And so they, it's just a whole different culture. And it truly is. They, they value the, their intangibles so yeah. much, their, their honor, their faith, their family. Their, their generosity so much more. And if you screw with any one of those, you've lost it forever. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about how this trip has kind of molded the last 40 years of your life, because you haven't necessarily had an opportunity to share this story in great detail. And I guess let's talk about that first. Why haven't you been able to share this with a lot of people and to a well, larger audience? The amount of, um, I, I worked at the, the supermarket in Coronado that I ripped off and uh, I had keys to the store and there was three hours a week that there was nobody present in the store and neither customers nor, nor crew. And so I devised a plan to open up during those three hours and haul out what ended up being quite a bit more than a, a full size eight foot bed Ford XLT 250 truck could hold. It was, you know, I, I overestimated what it would hold. 
And so I was, um, I could have gone to jail for, you know, felony grand theft, um, and probably amongst some other things. And then also I knew that Moose was a wanted felon going across the international border at the time I took him across. And so I could have gone to jail for 10 years for doing that. And so I had to wait for the statute of limitations to expire on both of those before I could tell anybody anything about the trip or how it got there. <clears throat> but I knew it was going to be something. So I took everything and I put it in a little shoebox, Mark, and I wrote on the top of it, bad karma, surf trip from hell, and, <laughs> <laughs> and stuck it up in the attic. And then uh, during that 10-year period, a, short, a couple years afterwards, I had a, a couple, I got married, had a couple of kids. And I didn't especially want them to know what a, a shit their dad had been in his 20s and wanted to get, show them, you know, be a good example as a father, a good role model and stuff. And so I changed. I uh, just kept everything, the story completely hidden away for another 25 years until I started, you know, sharing snippets and stuff with people. And then, and then even my kids, I'd tell them little excerpts from it and stuff, you know, like meeting El Chapo and, you know, getting chased <laughs> by shark and those kind of things. And, and they, they kept going, oh, come on, dad, really? Come on. You know, you didn't need El Chapo and stuff. And so I broke out the shoebox full of stuff and started going through it. And uh, uh, my, my son said, you know what, you've got a book there. And so um, I, I said, well, you know, maybe I will string this all together. But at the time I was a building contractor and I was working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week doing that. And um, my kids were already growing out of the house and having kids of their own. So that wasn't the, the issue, but it, it still took me another five or 10 years to finally get financially stable enough and, and ready to, to sit down and actually write the book. I would write a little bit here and there and I made a chapter outline and um, that sort of stuff. And then I, I, I actually, Quit and sold my business at age 62. I sold it and then spent the next uh, 10 months writing and getting it edited and all that. And then I blew uh, over a year uh, trying to get an edit of a, a publisher or a, a literary agent to pick it up and help me market it. I thought that was the only way you got a book out there. Mm -hmm. And when everybody kept saying, and you know, you might, you may, you may try self publishing, but don't spend a lot of money on it or anything. So I formed my own little publishing company called Oceanfront Publishing, and we have one book on our whole, uh, our, our, our catalog, and and launched it uh, on Amazon and everything. And again, I had some bad timing. I launched it just as the pandemic was hitting. But so <clears throat> I had gone out and I'd done 44 bookstore, bookstore signings in Barnes and Nobles, and independent stores, and surf shops even, and then uh, was shut down in uh, March of 2020. And so it, it kind of mothballed it a little bit. It still kept going along on word of mouth and everything. But I just started, I just resumed uh, signings and podcasts and things like that. And it's really taken off. And what was interesting that the book they said would never sell has now gone on to be um, uh, just signed a deal with the Russian publishing house for a Russian translated version, along with a nice advance and a guaranteed number of copies and uh, a, a European company that is uh, taking everything in Europe except for the UK. And uh, they're translating it into all the various languages there. That's so that awesome. was uh, yeah, we've yeah. Got, we're, we're up in six figures on copies sold, copies sold uh, already. And, That's amazing. Uh, and I've been approached by a couple of companies for a movie deal, and I've yes. decided to, <laughs> I, I, I've decided on the one I'm going with. I'm not allowed to say. Uh, I can tell you, it's Wonder Street Entertainment, but I can't tell you 
who's producing and directing and things like that yet until I'm given the okay to do that. Oh, that's awesome. But, but they that is. Up and so it looks like it's going to be a major motion picture. Yeah. I mean, uh, as soon as I started reading through <laughs> yeah. all of this and we started talking about it, I'm like, man, I can see this being a movie. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing. And and Paul, again, like I think one of the awesome things about this story is because it happened in 1978, you have the story you have. I don't think people would travel to Mexico or anywhere in the world and have a similar experience. You're not going to, to be able to enjoy time with a, a, a drug cartel uh, mm. in the day and age of surveillance and having cell phones and video and posting everything you do online. These type of experiences are essentially non-existent where you're kind of in the thick of it, letting it just unravel um, and being involved with crime (laughs) organized crime like it's just unheard of today i never would have considered ripping off the supermarket in this day right exactly right there dropping right to the door immediately Um, you would have been done right and and every uh photograph we took back then you had a camera i mean a physical camera and you were very judicious about how you used that film because you might only have 12 pictures on a roll or, or 24 pictures on a roll. And, you know, it was going to cost money to develop it, see if you actually got anything. Not like today with the cell phones and cell phone cameras or just digital cameras, you know, yeah. run off a burst of 25 pictures and don't think anything of it because you can pick out the one you like best and ditch the rest. Uh, yeah. and, and now it's it's just it, the, the amount of uh, thought that would end to snap in a picture then is just so different than it is today. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, and you would have you would have been stopped at the border with your buddy, and both of you went you would have went to jail. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, that wasn't the case. Yeah. In, in you know, for you, what are some of your favorite moments? Uh, some people that you met, experiences that you had, maybe maybe time with the the landscape and the environment. What do you think uh, personally were the highlights of your trip? I think the um, generosity and compassion, everything that was shown to me by the, the couple in uh, Mexico City was amazing. I had, um, uh, just a little background on that. I had to, uh, after the, the Volkswagen, we, when we tried, I <clears throat> skipped over the apartment, when we tried to leave La Tifa and cross the, uh, the Ostula River again, because the storm was coming in, we made it about halfway across and got stuck. We were high centered on a boulder. The, uh, the bus got pushed sideways and I gunned it to keep it from getting swept downstream and it, it reared up like a stallion and mounted itself on this boulder with all four wheels completely off the ground. And so we, we couldn't do anything. We, we couldn't jump on the back bumper, the front bumper, get it to, to get off that bumper, uh, off that boulder for anything. And while it was up there, the water kept rising and it kept getting higher and more more um, uh, rapid flowing through there and debris started coming down. And there was obviously a storm way up inland in the Astula Valley and that water was, was starting to hit us. And we started bailing everything out, ferrying everything over to the shore and piling it up on the shoreline. And the uh, all at once we heard this big rumble and roar and everything. And Moose was up on the shoreline guarding his stuff. And then uh, Jelly and I were with the bus. We were trying to get one last load of things out of there before the water just got too deep. And by then it was, it was you know, just above your waistline, maybe lower chest deep. Uh, and then uh, we heard this rumble and about 100, 200 yards, about 200 yards upstream, we could see this just white roiling froth of, of brown, red, reddish brown water and uh, uh, branches and pieces of barns and uh, stuff rounding the bend and it's something has broken loose up, upstream. It comes down and it hits us and it rolls us over and we end up 
getting pushed off the boulder by that. And Jelly and I hung onto the surfboard racks and rode the top of the bus. Uh, but like, you know, we had both front doors open because we're trying to let the water run through it rather than push it over. And, but with both front doors open, once it swung around, the water caught those and used them as wind wings, like dumbbell oh, players, and drug us downstream over a mile until we finally got to a wide, wide part where the water slowed down and left us there for the night. So well, after we got the bus out, we realized it needed some parts to get fixed. And so I had modified the engine and everything to a point where Volkswagen wouldn't touch it because it was non-authentic Volkswagen parts. So I'd take a bus to Mexico City to get the parts for it. So I got on the bus and went and <clears throat> I was I was hungry when we did had a layover in Guadalajara and I ate some food from the bus station that proved to not be a good idea and got violently ill. And I was just horribly ill all the way to um, on the back of the bus. And that, that's a whole story into itself. The, the bus ended up having an engine fire on the way and um, pulled over. Like I say, a different disaster every day. And it had an engine fire and pulled over and we had to wait for other people to come by and get us. And where it pulled off the side of the road, it was uh, over 8,000 feet elevation and it was freezing, freezing cold. Now I'm, I'm, I've been sick, so I'm drenched in sweat and all I have is a long sleeve t-shirt on because we're that, that was our warm weather wear. We we're going to the tropical beach. I didn't bring anything else. Yeah, right. And so I'm out and, and shivering and nobody wants to get near me because I'm covered in my own vomit and everything and um, they, and shivering cold. And we're waiting for each, uh, other buses to come by to pick up a few people at a time and take them to Mexico City. By the time I get on the bus, on the very last bus with the co-driver, I'm delirious with fever, with, with dehydration, with, with uh, the, the frozen air and everything. And so they, they plop me on the back of the on the floor on the back of the bus ride it into Mexico City, into the terminal, and evidently I mumbled something about get, get me to the university, because I, I figured the University of Mexico, somebody would know English there to help be able to help me out to go find the right bus parts and everything. And I don't remember how, getting out of the bus or even how I got there, but evidently they deposited me at the curb out in front of the bus station. And I had, you know, considerable cash with me because I was, you know, traveling and I had the the money for the, the bus parts and everything. And I had my mom had wired me some money because I had lost most of it in the, in the flood. And so uh, I was picked up by some guy and he in a Volkswagen Beetle and he ran me through the city. And, and you know, I was just spinning out of control, just delirious. I couldn't even hardly see my hands. And, and we get to a, a place and he, he stops and he says something to me. And so I grab my wallet and just hand it to him, figuring that, you know, he's going to get the, the fare or whatever. But he he pushes it back, carry, carries, half drags me to, the, to this uh, apartment, opens the door and pushes me in. And I'm greeted by somebody and, and he goes back and he leaves. Well, I wake up 30 hours later and I'm in this apartment and the, the, the girl that lives there is uh, uh talking to me and and you know touching my head and stuff and saying oh my gosh you know you've been out for 30 hours you're you're awake and it turns out and this couple they, they took care of me her boyfriend was a, a student at the, at the university and he was teaching her english and his girlfriend and then the guy the taxi driver his name was salvador and uh, he um had been the one to take me to his cousin's house <clears throat> didn't accept any money for it and they cleaned me up and everything uh, did my clothes and stuff and fed me and stuff and nursed me back to health and stayed there a whole other day and everything, you know, kind of recovering and telling him 
all the different stories and everything. And they were uh, devout Christians and they talked about how, you know, even, you know, the, the bad things I did. Cause I asked them, I said, do you think I've earned this bad luck and everything because all of the horrible things I've done. And they, they, he assured me that, you know, go to God and get his forgiveness and everything. So it's kind of a, a moment of real peace that they offered and then uh, Salvador took me the next day to the, get the parts then to the bus station, sent me on my way um, back to uh, um, uh, Colima at that point where the bus was at the Volkswagen place. And it was that, that was probably the most um, heartwarming and gratifying part of the whole trip, just to, to see the generosity and see the, the love that they were showing for a stranger. Yeah, that's incredible. I don't know if, I mean, I'm, those stories are, you hear them every now and then, but... They're always so heartwarming. Yeah, that sounds like that would have been a major turning point for you on a philosophical level. Like, mm-hmm. you know, being involved with drug cartel and friends who are committing crimes, and then sort of getting to experience the the complete opposite uh, selflessness. Um, and I could see that. Yeah, I could see that having an impact on somebody, and maybe enlightening you to change your trajectory for your your. <laughs> It changed my, my attitude a whole bunch. And uh, I think that you asked earlier about uh, what was the moment where I figured out I was on the wrong path. And that was probably the punctuation mark there that, you know, I was always com- already coming to that reckoning and everything. And then when that whole thing happened and I just saw that they, they didn't have much, you know, that was very, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, they put me on a mattress in a, a, a room that had no other furnishings or th- pictures or anything. And, uh, um, you know, that's how they lived. That was, that was their guest room. Um, and for them to treat me so well and, and not accept any kind of return favor or gratuity or any, anything at all. And then <clears throat> when I got back to the bus station with, uh, with Salvador, you know, I, he, he started to say, I asked him how much and he said, you know, Denada, like, you know, no worries. And I said, no, there's no way. And, and so I, I gave him some money and as much as I could have could give him. I gave him 40 bucks. I think I only had 50 left on me at the time. And I gave him 40 bucks figuring that, you know, uh, an hour and a half ride one way, an hour and a half ride the other way in a taxi cab and had all over town and put me up and everything like that. That was, uh, I was getting the, the good end of the deal for sure. But uh, it, it was just amazing to see just that, that love and compassion. Yeah. I'm curious, are you still in touch with anybody any of the either moose or jelly and any of the like Salvador, any of the two individuals that helped you in Mexico city. So well, don't, you don't have to say <laughs> if you're still in contact with El Chapo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a good one. Um, you know, what's uh, what's when I say the cosmos keeps score, um, I stole to go on this trip and I had lost absolutely everything. Everything I, I treasured was taken from me in, in return. Moose, um, he had killed somebody. And then run out on it. And uh, a couple of years later, after he had established the, the smuggling ring and that was busted and he hightailed it back to La Tipa and everything, he um, uh, had a run in with the uh, La Familia Michifana uh, and they um, killed him. They ambushed him and killed him. So Moose had killed somebody, he ended up being killed. And then Jelly, who was uh, the, the ladies' man, he was working in his parents' uh, um, backyard, exotic palm. Uh, grove a business and he had uh, a, a tree blow over in a storm he was going out to kind of check on things and a gust of wind blew a palm tree over 
and he nearly evaded it, but it came down. And as, as he turned, it clipped his nose and his cheek, and it took off most of his nose and his, and his cheek, broke his shoulder and ruined his hip. And he had reconstructive surgeries and everything, cosmetic surgeries, and it didn't really help. And so he, he became kind of a hunchback of Notre Dame type figure. And so he never dated again. And so he went from being a total ladies man to never having dated anybody again. He lives in a travel trailer in somebody's backyard. And he and I eventually had a falling out. So we haven't talked in 40 years and, and Moose oh, is wow. dead. So, but um, uh, Ed uh, Pedro in my book, my best friend who helped me uh, rip off the store and then also rescued me and also hung out with El Chapo with me on the return trip. Uh, he and I are still best friends. He was best man at my wedding in November. Um, and we, we, we've been remained very, very close to this day. Um, the other people on the, the, the trip, I saw the business card from Salvador's uh, uncle who uh, tried to fix my movie camera. And, uh, you know, I, I, I followed up on that. I haven't been able to, to follow it all the way to its conclusion. And then uh, um, as far as karma, you know, El Chapo, well, he got his karma too. And he ended up in jail. And so uh, I've not been able to make contact with them. However, <clears throat> in the picture, when I met uh, El Chapo, uh, by the way, he, uh, every, his close family and friends called him Chapo. El Chapo was reserved for people that were um, to look up to him, to edify him, to his, you know, the strangers and other people. He was El Chapo. But uh, to just he introduced himself to us as Chapo. And the reason he, he told us his nickname was because we all had nicknames. I was Opters, and there was Moose and Jelly and Peron. And so he, he wanted to know what our nicknames meant and what they were for. And so we asked him if he had one. He says, yes, it's Chapo. My grandmother gave it to me. It means shorty because he was pretty short. He was only about five, six, five foot six inches. But um, the um, uh, his friend that was with him at the time was Angel. Uh, they're loosely related and third cousins or something. And Angel and him uh, remain best friends to this day. I happened to run into somebody that was uh, uh, picking my brain for a book he was writing on, on the uh, younger years of, of El Chapo. And he called, he saw my book and he called and he talked to me about it. And he had actually become friends with Angel also during the trial. And he showed uh, Angel the, the photographs of, that I have of, of Chapo and Angel together. And he said, yep, that's it. I remember that whole, that whole thing that happened. It was quite memorable and stuff. Oh, wow. So I was, I was 99.9% .9 sure it was him because it was the same age, the same name, the same town, the same business, the same birthmark on his chin, um, everything lined up. And that, you know, until I had uh, Angel say, yep, that's us, then that, that sealed the deal. Have you been back to Mexico since all this occurred? I have not traveled in a Volkswagen down there again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. although, although I do have a 66 Volkswagen in the garage. A bus? <laughs> yeah, I was able to score a, a 66 VW bus last May. Uh, that is nice. uh, the VIN number is 17 digits different than the Wonder Bus. They went down <laughs> to Mexico. And so um, when they make the movie, maybe I'll lease it to them or something. I think it's but, a great uh, vehicle to tour <laughs> the United States and promote your yeah. movie and book it. Yeah, wouldn't it? The, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it does turn a lot of heads. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, I've been down to Mexico and um, uh, like flying down to Cabo San Lucas or flying to Montanillo and things like that. Um, but, um, you know, it's it's not anywhere that I would travel on the ground through. Um, I mean, if I was 21 or, or 25, I might do it again. Mm -hmm. if, you know, you're immortal then. Um, right. your, your frontal lobes haven't fully developed. <laughs> right. yeah, I, I, I'm writing a little, another little book and I, I call it global norming. 
<laughs> the uncertain future, of, <laughs> the uncertain future of primate change. <laughs> it's yeah, a, it, how, how males' brains don't fully develop until their mid twenties. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I might take that same trip, you know, if I was young, but you know, I'm wiser and and not as fast anymore. So I think I would, uh, I prefer to fly and take, you know, shuttle buses and things like that. Yeah, a little more R and R. Yeah. Now, what you said about the Mexican people and and realizing how nice they were and compassionate towards you and you really enjoyed your experiences with them. Did that then lead you to travel to other countries around the world or was this a one-time thing? Well, I did travel to other countries, but it wasn't, uh, it's was more for business. Um, okay. I, I have uh, patents on some gadgets I've invented over the years and had some of them manufactured uh, in um, uh, China and uh, uh, also in uh, Taiwan and Malaysia. And so I traveled to those countries. Um, when I was in China, uh, I got to go land in Hong Kong, and then my uh, handler took me up into mainland China. I got to travel around up there a bit. And then on my off days, it was so expensive to stay in Hong Kong that if I would go, I, I might have a series of meetings over a period of, of two weeks. But the meetings were, you'd have one the day you got there, and then you'd have one four days later, and you'd have one seven days later, and then a final one at the manufacturing plant or something the last day before you left. Well, in between, I would, uh, it was cheaper to hop a plane and fly down to Bali and stay there for three or four days and fly back than it was to remain in Hong Kong. And so I, I did that a couple of times. And then also uh, I would go out of just gallivanting around and taking the local buses uh, and take going out on Hong Kong Island. And there's actually a, a, a place there. It faces, um, uh, let's see, due west. So it faces Hawaii from the tip of uh, Hong Kong Island. And uh, it's called, there's a, a bay there called Big Wave Bay. And so I went over there and I actually, uh, I rented a boogie board and uh, boogie boarded the, uh, the, the, the surf in Big Wave Bay uh, a couple of times. And <laughs> that's awesome. an interesting place as well because they have a big shark net across it and they have a guy up on a platform watching for sharks. If any, any of them get through, then he whistles and everybody gets out of the water. But, um, you know, mm. they, everywhere you go around there, there's warnings about getting in the water without somebody present to look out for sharks. Wow. Well, uh, so, so I want to go back to the moral of your book. You already talked about it, uh, but um, a lot of the listeners that we have on the show are have less travel and life experiences than you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so touching back up on the moral of your book, what would you say to these young people who uh, also want to experience the world, hopefully not as intensely as you did, uh, and I guess intensely, you know, you could... Mm-hmm. Break it down, but yeah, what would you say to these people? Well, I'd say <clears throat> don't be afraid of experiencing it t- intensely. Um, you know, get out there into the culture. Um, you know, at age 21, when I took a bus from Colima up to Mexico City, uh, my friends all said, No, they got back, said, Oh my god, you know, I can't believe you did that. Weren't you worried? And I was like, Well, no, the everybody I'd met was fantastic. So get into the culture a little bit. When I went to Hong Kong, I went out in, into the remote areas where I was the only. Um, Caucasian uh, that I'd see, I'd see for the whole day. Don't stay in the tourist areas. Get out amongst the people. Um, experience the culture. Um, you know, introduce yourself. Talk to people the best you can, and you'll be amazed that that how many of them uh, will invite you and have you for dinner. So you know, treat you like an honored guest when you know <clears throat> you're you're just getting out there to experience the life and the culture and everything. But the, the people, they, they have so little, but they want to share so much. They want to know everything about you and about America and, and 
your your family and your travels and uh, but they have so much to share and they'll they'll take you around they'll show you their animals they'll they'll uh, take you out and show you the trail down to the water where they go to get the water from the well and just uh, the you know, you walk through this little village and they'll say, and you know, this is the mayor's house and this is my grandmother was there and I was born in this hut. And um, so get out, not, not from the, the metropolitan areas to cities of 10,000. I mean, get out to the, the villages of 25, um, you know, get way back into the country. And I don't know if yeah. I'd recommend that in headhunter country, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. what's for dinner? Well, you are. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> But uh, get out and experience the, the real countryside, so the, the um, geological things, the, the waterfalls and the, the, the tide pools. And those, those are fun to look out, you know, with the other tourists and take home pictures, but take home the memories of the people um, and always ask permission before taking a picture. Always ask permission. Let them take one of you first. Yeah, right, right. Elliot, how many times have we heard that, a version of that? Paul, I, it's been, we've, We've asked obviously similar similar questions to so many guests, and it's such a recurring theme. We've heard versions of what you said countless times now, and yet I still don't think like the general population within the United States realizes it. They don't have that um, insight because they haven't experienced it, and they just assume that people are, I don't know, not as accepting of tourists, not as accepting of Americans. They'll have a harder time navigating, and they won't make connections with people. And it's just the polar opposite. It is. It's completely the opposite. Just like I went down there expecting, not not trusting the Mexicans because of what my dad had instilled in me and everything. Um, and it was it took a while to let go of that um, ingrained prejudice mm -hmm. and uh, uh, bigotry. But once you're down there and you just experience time after time after time, it, it's the completely opposite. Um, you know the, um, the 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 border cities and the big metropolitan areas and everything. They're kind of like in the United States, you know, the metropolitan areas are usually a lot more risky to walk around in than the small towns are. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same, the same thing when you get down there, you know, <clears throat> back uh, probably 30 years ago, I was traveling for my dad's company on, on business and I was going in a, a little Chinook pop top uh, mini motorhome and I was driving uh, uh, from Philadelphia over the Poconos uh, to inland somewhere. I forget where it was, but uh, uh, a snowstorm hit and I slid off the road in some ice and slid into a gully and was wondering, you know, how the heck am I going to get out of this? Well, some local kids came by with a, with a Jeep and they pulled me out. They took me to their house. They, they put me up in a room, fed me dinner, fed me breakfast in the morning and sent me on my way. And it wow. was just, you know, you, you wouldn't have that happen in Philly downtown Philly. You wouldn't have that happen in, in the Bronx. Yeah, you know, exactly. it, 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 your, your motorhome would be pulled out of the ditch, but you wouldn't be driving home with it. Yeah. <laughs> right. but, 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 you know, I think small town rural areas are just the, the you see the true character of a, of a people when you get into those environments, whether it's here or um, in, you know, the town we moved to, we're uh, uh, just north of Danville, uh, south of Lexington, north of Danville. And the, the people here are just fantastic. It's a very small town. It's uh, we're 10 miles in any direction from any population center of more than 10,000. Um, and, uh, you know, you go into town and everybody says, hey, you know, how y'all doing? And you want to come in and hey, let me tell you about this place over here. And, you know, <laughs> so we're, we're trying to get the, the native tongue down and everything. It's interesting. Sometimes you have to ask them to repeat it because you just flat out don't understand it. But the, I think the United States is very much like every other country. You know, get out into the countryside and explore, even if it's only domestically. Yeah, 
Great advice. Great advice. Uh, Paul, we're going to jump into a round that we didn't really give you a heads up on. It's called the rapid fire round of the podcast. Okay. Before we do, uh, please let us know where people can buy your book, where people can see your social media, all those good things. Well, probably the best starting jump off point would be to go to badkarmabook.com. And then that has a page on there that says, uh, you know, if you, if you want to buy, there's a list of a half a dozen or so major retailers. Um, uh, you can go to, you know, Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Target or Costco or any one of those things and, and purchase it there. Um, and then um, um, my Instagram account is Oceanfront Paul uh, at, at Oceanfront Paul uh, because I used to live, I lived the last 20 years on the beach in San Diego. And so now, now I may need to change that because now I'm lakefront, <laughs> lakefront in Kentucky. But yeah, cornfield front, Paul. <laughs> yeah. something, you know, yeah. something along those lines. Hey, you so can do waterfront. Yep, yep. Water, waterfront. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we, yeah. Have, we have 300 feet of lake frontage, but it is it's one of those um, uh, flood uh, control lakes. Okay. And so okay. the level goes up and down tremendously. You know, we've we've seen it change in elevation by 34 feet so far. Oh wow! Ooh, wow! That's quite a bit. All right. Well, Paul, you actually answered a few of these rapid firing questions already, but we'll we'll go through them. Yeah, again. You, you know, Elliot. Now that you said that, I should note that you answered uh, most of the questions I think we had for you. <laughs> you just you, you just ran with it, and we 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 jumped into so many different things that I wanted to uh, to get into without even me or Elliot having to ask them. But uh, that was pretty awesome. Uh, Elliot, you wanna, go ahead. I'll get it started. Paul, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? people perfect uh with the exception of your own what (laughs) travel book has had the biggest influence on your life no i enjoyed um uh barbarian uh days uh, the um, bill finnegan travel book it's a surfing travel book and it, it follows it. It's a memoir. I traveled through his whole life, but I enjoyed the parts about the, the, the countryside and everything. Um, you know, from growing up in Hawaii to traveling to the, the South Pacific and surfing all the different places and stuff. And um, for, for my money, he spends too much time describing the waves, but the time, the amount of time that he spends uh, describing the cultures and the people and the adventures and things, I really got a lot out of that. That's awesome. You know, that's really interesting. Um, and now I'm thinking, to find something that you you already enjoy a hobby and then and then re- getting it to experience it through the eyes of travel is, is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I know the answer to this one, but I'll ask it anyway. What uh, so from these options, what aspect of travel has the biggest impact on your experience? Landscape, history, architecture, food, or people? Well, um, people definitely, but food is a close second. Um, you know, from eating um, seahorse in um china wow. to um, um you know all the, the the strange delicacies you know they talk about the wuhan wet market i've yeah. been to those yeah. <laughs> over there. Uh-huh. so it, it's uh, there if, if you've been to some of those restaurants up there um, <clears throat> they're they're kind of a hybrid between a pet store and a restaurant you, okay. you walk in the lobby and there's a there cages of all kinds of different things and you you decide what it is you're gonna you're gonna have for dinner I asked the waiter one time what the most expensive thing on the menu was, and he says, well, a king cobra. And I said, oh, are they rare? And he says, no, they're quite plentiful, but they're also very deadly, and the cook expects to be well compensated. 
Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they're alive when when before you. Yeah. Get them. Oh yeah. You, yeah. You, you pick it out. You know whether you want a monkey or you want a, a duck or a rabbit or a snake. It, you just choose it from the pet store and then they cook it for you. So your experience in the Guadalajara Guadalajara bus stop didn't taint your uh, food. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've been I've been a little more careful. Eat, eat in places where other people are also eating. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a good rule of thumb for everywhere. Yeah, that was kind of a one-off mistake. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question. Tell us one thing people should not do while traveling. Um, show off. I like it. All right. Yeah, I like whether it. it's whether it's your clothing, your mannerisms, your your attitude. Um, be humble. Um, you're you're the guest. Just be humble. Yeah. Right. You shouldn't be going. You shouldn't be traveling to project yourself into the environment. You should be absorbing. Right. Yeah. yeah it, you know, I'm six foot three, so it's a little hard to blend in in, in China. But the um, the still it's, it's funny going on the subway and you look up and all the heads are going like this with the turns and everything. <laughs> <laughs> you can see every one of them because you're much taller than everybody else. But it's uh, but but you know, do your best to just blend in and yeah, don't be obnoxious. All right, and, and don't drink too much unless it's with somebody that's there. Yes. Yeah. Right, that's a good right. that's a good one. Bob, I'm gonna let you take this one because I'm gonna add a sixth one specifically for Paul. Oh, this is a first. Okay. Uh Paul, what is one piece of advice you give to yourself ten years ago? Ten years ago, um, I was getting things together pretty well. I think uh, ten years ago I would say uh, write the book sooner, um, tell the story sooner. Um, it it uh um, and just get it out there. Don't 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 uh you know, I, I wrote it uh, when I did because I didn't want to die and take the story to my grave with me. I want to be able to to tell my grandkids. You know, my dedication in the book is uh, um, to my five grandkids by name. And it says, uh, uh, read this when you're old enough and then do everything the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. So the sixth question I'm going to ask, and I don't think it should impact. I'm going to phrase it in a way that won't give away anything for the movie. But if you could choose someone to play you as your younger self in a motion picture, who would it be? Current actors, I'd say Tom Holland. All right. Nice. He, drive, nice. he, drives a, he drives a VW bus and he surfs. All right. Oh, does he? I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know either of these and, things. And I also got uh, through the, the grapevine that he read the book and loved it. Okay. Oh, oh man! All right, all right. And he's doing, uh, he's doing Uncharted. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Last Nathan, of Us. Nathan. Drake. So he's getting into the adventure action. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I see where your yeah. head's at. He, I he's, like he's, it. He's, he's just twenty-four, and I was twenty-one at the time. He could pull it off. Yeah, I think Absolutely. he'd be a great fit. Absolutely. Okay. But he's a he's a little bit shorter than you are. Oh yeah, but you know. They can they can do things. VW yeah. bus. I, yeah. I, I look too big for a VW bus anyway. He'd fit in a lot better. All right, Paul. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we spent a year talking to you back and forth, slowly <laughs> getting you on. We're glad to finally do it. Um, highly well, recommend you so your book. If you're listening to this, you can click the link in the show notes. Uh, we'll direct you to Paul's website. You can buy the book. Get ready for the movie. Um, definitely recommend doing that. And uh, yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it today. You're welcome very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. What a blast. That was an awesome book and will be an awesome movie. And I'm looking at you, Tom Holland. The movie will be incredible. I, I love travel stories like this. And I think I part too. of it is because I personally could never do it. So I love to hear it. Like it just it sounds awesome. 
when you get to sit down and talk to the person. But living in those moments to me would have been just chaotic. Like I personally just don't have the <laughs> the ability to do that. Like I would just not, I would go not home. as a twenty one year old. No, even as a twenty one year old, I was more cautious than that. I was by no means uh, like a saint, but I was not like go right. to Mexico and hang out with drug cartel. No, I wasn't that. I don't think that was their intent. It, I think their intent was to surf. Uh, <laughs> it just happened. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, but it, it's it's one of those stories that it, <laughs> it will make a great movie. Yeah, I mean, it, and the insight for something that's happened over thirty years ago, like this, I don't think this would happen nowadays, as we kind of talked about. No, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it would have been, they would have been stopped at the border. So. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the show. If you like Elliot and I and want to support us in a non-financial way, you can do so by simply liking our Instagram posts, sharing things on social media, commenting, stuff like that. That just gives our engagement uh, a boost. But if you want to help us out in a financial way, there's a link on our Instagram page where you can click that and you can buy us a coffee. And we would greatly appreciate it. Every little dollar helps us, you know, dedicate more time to the podcast. The more we can make through the podcast, the more I can convince my wife that I can quit my job and do this full time. So please consider <laughs> that. Purely selfish and, reasons. Yeah. No, no, we, we yeah. can get better guests and better quality, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so the real reason. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. We, we truly do appreciate it. 